If you turn to Mark chapter 10 this morning, uh, it's going to make a little bit more sense, I think, uh, why we began with that passage of scripture from Genesis chapter 2. As you look at the text for this morning, I think it'll become even more evident as we work our way through it, um, how it pertains to what is going to happen in the life of Jesus at this point. So here we are at Mark chapter 10. It's taken us a little while to get this far in, not as long as it could have, but there's going to be a transition here in this chapter. Something is shifting pretty drastically in the life of Jesus, and it's worth noting at the very beginning as we get here to this chapter, the shift in the direction is going to shift into the final stanza of the life of Jesus. Um, There's been kind of a focus at this point on Galilee leading up to chapter 10, where Jesus and the primary focus of his ministry has been in that northern region of Israel. He's come down for feasts and he's appeared in Jerusalem a number of times, but the, the main focus of his ministry has been in the north, centering around these little villages around the Sea of Galilee. Now he's traveled outside of that, but primarily he's been working in this region. And as he now will see at the beginning of chapter 10, departs from Capernaum, from the northern region, he's going to travel across the Jordan River and he's making his way south. He's making his way into the region of Perea, or an area that we would call Transjordan, and he's moving southerly, if you will, in route to Jerusalem. This is the final trip. This is the final journey that he will take in this direction. And so Jesus, we understand this as believers, but we need to remember it, has begun his journey to the cross. Jesus has begun his final journey to the cross. This is the last time he'll go in this direction. And it's important to remember this fact within the situations that we're going to study leading up to his crucifixion, because we're going to notice something. Jesus took time on his final journey to reveal to those around him and to us the divine purpose for humanity And he reveals its true value to society as well. Jesus isn't going to shy away from the day-to-day things that need to be taught, that need to be learned by us, that need to be paid attention to. He's not going to set all that aside because he's so singularly focused that nothing else matters. In fact, everything else matters because of what he's going to do. Because of what he's going to do, everything in life that we are doing matters. And within the first 16 verses of Mark 10, Jesus is going to reveal the Christian ideal for family. He's going to show the Christian ideal for family. So in verses 1 through 12, he's going to talk about marriage. And in verses 13 through 16, he's going to talk about children. There's a slide for that, Trevor. So here's something that we need to pay attention to, I think just as an oversight, as, a, as, a, as an overview, is that Jesus does not set aside the day-to-day things, even though the cross is what looms ahead. I think a lot of times we get so focused on one big thing in our lives that we forget that all the little things that lead us up to this matter. And in fact, is what we're going to talk about this morning, marriage, it's often interesting how we will focus on really big moments leading up to marriage or even in marriage that matter more than others, right? You ask a guy like, what's the one day a year you cannot forget? He's going to be like, anniversary, right? (laughs) Or his wife's birthday. See, now I did something really shrewd here that will either work out really well for me or will end up being my doom. Sarah's birthday is the day before our wedding day. So her birthday is August 9th. Now you all know. But it, our anniversary is August 10th. 
So here's, here's the thing. I have a double reminder, right? Like if I, for, if I, I, can't, I couldn't possibly forget both. But if I do, <laughs> it will mean that I did not forget one or the other. It means that I forgot both of them. And so if I'm not here on a random Sunday in August, you should look in dumpsters. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. She's smarter than that. She'll burn the remains. Anyway, so... The Christian ideal for the family is what Jesus is going to focus on. And I want to read this quote from G. Campbell Morgan because this is great. He said, his face, speaking of Jesus, was set toward the cross. His heart was filled with the passion for redeeming men, but not for a moment did he lower the standard of divine requirements. Jesus took time to teach people along the way. And we're going to look at the first 12 verses of this chapter, Mark chapter 10, And I want you to notice something. Jesus begins by teaching the crowds. And then when he's asked a question about divorce, notice how Jesus redirects the focus of the response. It's interesting because when I look at my Bible, I'm using the CSB version, at the top of this chapter it says the question of divorce. Well, that was the Pharisees' question. But their question revealed something that was very, very wrong in their hearts. And we know this very well. You guys should know this. We've been studying through the gospel of Mark for a while. What does Jesus always do? He goes right for the heart every time. So let's look at how he does it. Mark chapter 10, verses 1 through 12. We're going to talk about marriage this morning. So he set out from there, there being Capernaum, the north, and went to the region of Judea and across the Jordan. Then crowds converged on him again, and as was his custom, he taught them again. Some Pharisees came to test him, asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He replied to them, What did Moses command you? And they said, Moses permitted us to write divorce papers and send her away. But Jesus told them, He wrote this command for you because of the hardness of your hearts. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. And for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, and the two will become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. When they were in the house again, the disciples questioned him about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. Also, if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. This is the word of the Lord. I just want to say at the very onset, look out, I'm off notes that I've heard this passage taught quite a few times in my life. And I think that automatically what I would think of when I approached this text was not the correct thing. My questions leading up to this week of this passage changed as I was studying it this week. And I remember a quote from a guy named Peter uh, Drucker. He's a, a leadership coach. And he said, the most serious mistakes are not being made as a result of wrong answers. The true dangerous thing is asking the wrong question. It's interesting to me how often we're focused on what the answer to something is. It's fascinating to me how often in Scripture the Pharisees are asking the wrong question. Isn't that fascinating when you think about how often they question Jesus and you're like, that's not the right question. Well, Jesus doesn't play around with them. He just gets to the correct answer and sometimes will just omit the question they asked. Here he deals with them a little bit, but the statement, that statement, the true dangerous thing is asking the wrong question. I think about how often when I ask a question, 
am I actually interested in the answer? Am I receptive for the answer that I'm going to receive for the question I've asked? Because oftentimes my motive for asking the question is not to learn. And it's not even a desire to teach. You guys, in my flesh, a lot of times we ask questions because we have an agenda. We'll ask a question that's trying to lead somebody in a direction to get an answer we're looking for. That's called manipulation, by the way, if you dial it all the way down, if you wash it through. And that's not something that Jesus does. You see, manipulation is based on lie. Inspiration is based on truth. Jesus inspires. Jesus directs us to truth. And so when he gives us these responses, he's not dodging any questions. He's getting to the heart of the issue. And Mark makes it clear that the question they're asking is to test Jesus. They're putting him to the test yet again. They're trying to make him prove himself. Remember the last time they did this in Galilee? And they said, give us a sign. And he says, no. And in fact, in Mark's gospel, he kind of leaves it at no. And, and we know from the other gospels, he does add one little thing. He says, you're going to get the sign of Jonah. That's the only sign that you're going to get. But in Mark's gospel, he says, Jesus is like, no, I'm not going to give you a sign. And he leaves. He doesn't even deal with the question. He's like, no. And it's interesting because all that Jesus had done thus far had proven who he is. He wasn't going to waste any more time doing a tap dance for people who were asking questions or seeking signs to convict him not to believe. And so Mark makes it clear that they're seeking to test Jesus again as he's teaching these crowds there in Perea. And they wanted to know which teacher of the day Jesus was falling with. If you read a little bit of history in the first century, this makes a lot of sense. Essentially, they're going back to Deuteronomy 24.1, which says if a man marries a woman, but she becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, he may write her a divorce certificate, hand it to her, and send her away from his house. And some of you are reading that going, what? I got to read some more Old Testament law. Don't even think it, guys. Don't even think it. That's not in context. And that's the point. Pharisees love to quote things out of context. But here's what the two primary schools of thought were in the first century on this topic. Now, they probably look at the first four verses of Deuteronomy 24, but we'll just look at the first one because that's the one where one of these schools of thought would really run with that first verse on its own. There were two schools of thought. Shammai, his school, and most of the time you find that Shammai and Hillel were the two primary rabbinic teachers of this period. And they agreed on most things, but there was a few things that they didn't agree on. This was one of them. This is one of the things they didn't agree on. Shammai was the stricter school, and he understood these words to mean it had to be something morally indecent, in particular, adultery. And so it came down to a, a question about adultery if you were following the teachings of Shammai. The school of Hillel interpreted the words much more freely, meaning that indecent had a really broad definition, all the way down that a husband could divorce his wife for just about any reason, even burning his food. If she brought him a burnt piece of toast, he'd be like, we're done. I'm done. So where did Jesus stand on this? That's what they want to know. When they come to Jesus and when they question him in this passage, they say, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? They want to know, who do you side with, Shemaiah? Hello. Who are you siding with? And Jesus did something brilliant. But I want to I want to wait on that just a second. 
Before we look at what Jesus does, because I told you this when we started studying through Mark, we're going to look as intently and as carefully as we can at the life, the character, the teachings of Jesus. We just want to focus in on him. Spend as little time looking at the people around, but let's just look at Jesus and see what he does. Watch him in every situation. Before we get to how Jesus responds, I think it's fascinating not only how they're testing him, but where. Who remembers what I just said? Where are they? Perea, or Transjordan, either way, but Perea, right? Who's the governor of this region? Does anyone know? Herod, which one? (laughs) Herod Philip was in charge of the north. Caesarea Philippi would have been his region. Herod Antipas is the one who's in charge of this region. He's the governor of this region. Mike, why would that matter? I'm so glad you asked. Who is the one who put John the Baptist to death for saying that his marriage to Herodias was sinful and unlawful? Herod Antipas. To be very specific, how fascinating that the question about divorce from the Pharisees comes to Jesus in his region. Fascinating, right? Coincidence? I think not. Right? For all you lovers of the Incredibles. You guys, the motivation of their question is certainly worth considering. Why are they asking this question? The true dangerous thing is asking the wrong question. What's the motive? What do they want to do with Jesus at this point? The most important question is not what Jesus says about divorce. They're asking the wrong question. The most important teaching that human beings need to understand is what Jesus says about marriage in this topic. It's not what he says about divorce. It's what he thinks of marriage. We have to start there. If you want to understand divorce, you have to start with what godly marriage looks like. You have to start with how God instituted it. Isn't that so often the problem with us is that we don't take time to understand what God has established something to be before we're looking for a way to either refute it, dispute it, or be free of it. So he replies to them very shrewdly, by the way. If you think that Jesus wasn't shrewd, like the way he responds with things, check this out. He replies to them, what did Moses command you? Jesus took them to Moses. Where's he about to go? Right after this. He's going to go to Genesis. Why did he bring Moses into it? Because he knew that's what they would do. Jesus knows who they're going to appeal to because they already are asking him about divorce, not about God's design for marriage. Jesus knows where they're going to go. And so he says, what did Moses commit? He beats them to the punch and he's getting them to commit to it. What did Moses say? And what do they say? They're ready. Oh, Moses permitted us to write divorce papers and send her away. That's where we land with this, right? Now notice how nebulous they are. You know, like we're kind of, you know, he just said we could. And you just want to know where you stand on the whole issue. Where's Herod? Right? Jesus knew they were going to appeal to Moses. So he made them make that commitment. He gets them, okay, this is what they're focused on now because that's the, that's the source. That's where they're coming from. Their response is based on Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4, that whole passage, but that passage doesn't command divorce. It doesn't command divorce. If you read it carefully, it only acknowledges it, protected the woman's rights, and prohibits a husband from remarrying his original wife if he married another woman in between. 
So once again, the Pharisees are misquoting or misinterpreting Scripture. They're not giving the entirety. They're just kind of being loosey-goosey, nebulous about it, and like, well, it says this a little bit, you know. It's like somebody looks at you and goes, well, I'm supposed to love my neighbor, but I don't like this one. There's grace. (laughs) Look how Jesus handles it. He answers them directly. Verse 5. Jesus told them, he wrote this command for you because of the hardness of your hearts. Boom, roasted. Right? He says, he wrote this because of, the com- because of the hardness of your hearts. That's why. Right? But, this is where he gets into the good stuff. Verse 6. From the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. And for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Jesus takes them nowhere new. He just takes them to the beginning. He takes them to where it all started. He takes them back to their own sacred writings, and thereby, yet again, Jesus takes the Pharisees to school. It should be a kid's book. You know, wouldn't that be a fun kid's book series for Sunday school? Jesus takes the Pharisees to school. And it's just a bunch of teachings of him like, reorganizing their brains about this stuff, even though, sadly, their hearts refused to submit. Rather than entertain their questions about divorce any longer, Jesus seeks to correct their understanding of what marriage truly is. And we're going to dig into this, and this is really cool stuff, you guys. It's, it's awesome to look at. He makes three key points regarding marriage based off of Genesis 1 and 2. Here's his three key points. From the beginning, God made them male and female. God did this. From the beginning, God made them this way. Number two, a man will leave his father and mother. And number three, the two will become one flesh. To answer the heart of the question that the Pharisees asked, Jesus directs their view away from their own opinions and away from their own interpretation of Moses' law and brings them back to original intent. Here's what God set out to do by creating male and female. Here's what God intended to do. Boy, how many things, you guys, in our lives are a mess because we don't go back to the original intent that God had. If I go back to what God intended in the first place and I live that way, how many things in your life would just calibrate right up? How much easier would it be for us before we did something stupid and sinful if we simply stopped in our tracks and allowed the Holy Spirit to bring us back to what God intended from the beginning god what did you design for me we get caught up in the minutiae of what's lawful what's not lawful how close can i get to the line can i get away with this is god mad at me for that does this sin matter more than that sin and we get into this mentality in ourselves of how close can i get to this line instead of how did god design me to begin with what does he expect of me from the get-go And how can I walk with him in that truth now? In the light of his word, as he has shown us in his scriptures. Jesus is wanting to show us what God intended from the beginning. This is what marriage was designed to be as created by God and as affirmed by Jesus. It's Genesis 1 verses 26 through 27. He affirms this. Jesus does. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. 
They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. Now, this is going to explain a lot of things that the world's really struggling with right now. And I'm not going to dig into a ton of them because we're just going to read the text. Amazing idea, right? Let's just read the text and follow what God did. The word used for man means human. It means humanity. So when you read in this text, let us make man in our image. He says, so God created man in his own image. He's speaking of humanity. And how did he do that? He created them male and female. Those are the representatives of humanity. Now we're going to get into a little bit more of the depth of that, but the clarification of humanity being created in his image is clear in verse 27. Both men and women are equally created in the image of God. We share the divine likeness of God. Every person in this room. Now hold on tight. Because this is where it gets fun. Jesus says, that in marriage, the man and woman leave their parents and start a new family unit, yes? Because you have to leave, and it's like we used to say in the old King James, leave and cleave, right? People are like, cleave? No, 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 think stick to. <laughs> Don't think like, that's why we got to be careful about language, right? <laughs> Some people have taken that quite literally. They are now in jail. Um, <laughs> that's dark, I know. <laughs> You guys, the man and the woman leave their parents and start a new family unit by becoming one flesh. The two become one. I think in modern Western thought, we have a problem with this. And you're like, yeah, and it's not what you're thinking. It's not the confusion about who can be married. It's the confusion about who we are as human beings, created male and female, and what God designed marriage to be in respect to this. In modern Western thought, we think of ourselves individually as spheres. Often we think of ourselves as spheres. You're like, spheres? Yeah, I'm round. No, I'm just kidding. I think of myself as this, this self-contained unit, right? It's just me and Jesus, and we have this mentality. It's just me and Jesus doing my thing. You know, I don't need anybody but Jesus, and actually that's not scriptural. That's not biblical. Not only do you need the body, the church, even in Christ, when you have Jesus, he says, I've made you to be a part of a body. You are a part of a body that has many members. You are one of them, and you are attached to them, and we've gone over this. When one is severed off and left in a field, that's gross. That's not something that should be. It's grotesque for a reason. We are to be connected to one another. Not only that, what is the greatest representation of two becoming one in terms of humanity in Scripture? It's marriage. This is a very important thing to God. He made it this way from the beginning. Now follow along with me here. This is cool. When we believe for a second that we are individual spheres unto ourselves, independent from others, is that what God intended for humanity from the beginning? No, he actually designed us to be dependent from the beginning. Not only on him, but each other. The original intent was that we would have partnership, oneness, that we would experience oneness in our physical flesh in the same way that God says, I am one. 
that we would be image bearers in this way as well. And in Genesis 2.20, if you notice, when you read it, Adam is incomplete. Adam is not well. The giraffe wasn't a good fit for him. Right? You think about all the, like, giraffes probably didn't exist. Whatever it was that he had there, it was very noticeable that none of them were compatible. Okay? And so after meeting all the creatures, there's no helper just right for him. He wasn't a sphere. He was a hemisphere. Can you throw that slide up? This is why you're like, why do you call it? That's why. Now that makes sense to me. I hope it makes sense to you. I almost went through the trouble of putting Mike over one of those. <laughs> like, like, Mike is a hemisphere. This is a very important concept for us to understand. Because it's a biblical one. And I think that we look at ourselves and we go, here is my life, and here's all the things that my life needs to contain. No, that is your life. You are half of a whole. You are incomplete. Adam wasn't a sphere. He was a hemisphere. He was half of a whole. God didn't create man to function on his own. He needed help. He needed it in a way that was not like, it'd be really nice if I had someone to talk to. That's not why God created woman. God created woman because she was the other half of the perfect divine likeness that was going to complete the picture. Do you realize that men and women uniquely represent the divine image of God in their own ways? But apart from each other, it's an incomplete picture. Connected to each other, we show people that spherical picture of who God is as one and that marriage is how we do that. For the married people in the room or those who are going to be married, those who are called to marriage, I want you to think about this. That is the picture of Scripture. We need to align our minds with it. Humanity is not represented in men or women. It's represented and it bears God's image in their union, in them coming together. Man is in the divine likeness and divine image partially. Woman is in the divine likeness and the divine image partially. We share elements of the image of God and within marriage we're intended to unveil the truth concerning God. Our marriages should be a declaration of the truth of God. Puts a little more weight on marriage, doesn't it? Puts a little more importance on what we're doing in our marriages, doesn't it? It's the truth of God that the world is intended to see through man and woman together as one because he is one. We as the church are an extension of this thought as the Lord has called us to unity and not individualism, not to isolation. And it's through our unity under the leadership of Christ that the world experiences his light. This unity began with marriage from the beginning. That was the original intent. If you want to counsel married people, if you are a married person, if you want to be encouraged in your marriage, go back to the original intent. And is that what we are trusting the Lord to walk us through? Is that what we're letting the Lord empower us through? Because this is difficult stuff. This is not easy for any of us. We don't accomplish that mission through isolation. We accomplish this mission through unity and oneness. As an aside here, because I know that some of you are like, I'm not married, Mike. It's okay. It's okay. You guys, this doesn't discount the call to singleness. Some are called to singleness. Some are not. 
Jesus speaks to that in Matthew's record um, of this passage in Matthew 19. And Paul writes about the value of singleness in 1 Corinthians 7. Paul himself was like, single guy doing ministry work. Was he against God's original intent because he was living that life? No, that's what God called him to. But for the majority of us, we are called to partnership. Because we were created that way. Most of us are going to be in this situation. And do our marriages look like the truth of God in marriage? And does singleness look like the truth of God in singleness? Are we letting God be glorified through our lives by obedience? Or are we actually pulling in ideas of the world? Are we adopting thoughts and patterns of the world? You guys... It is of the utmost importance because this is the focus of the text that we understand what marriage truly is, what God intends it to be, and God's purpose in creating us. And when he did, he did so with marriage in mind. Marriage is a condition of divine expression and activity. Therefore, where its fundamental significances are forgotten and its fundamental laws are disobeyed, it becomes the most tragic of experiences. Where the fundamentals that God has put in place for marriage get forgotten or thrown out, it becomes tragedy. It becomes something it doesn't represent. And for any of you that have experienced that tragedy, there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen? You are forgiven of that. He has cleansed you of that. And I would encourage you to set that aside and to walk in a newness of life. Adopt what God has said. None of us has lived this life perfect. None of us has a perfect record here, but we can look at his word and ask the Holy Spirit to empower us to walk in a newness of life. Amen? Do not be condemned. This isn't condemnation. This is encouragement to obey Christ in these things. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. The question of divorce is approached by Jesus from the viewpoint of what God intended marriage to be and if we look at our lives from the viewpoint of sin failure condemnation we're always going to feel hopeless if we don't look at it the way jesus does which is here's what the father has designed this to be here's what i created from the beginning let's go back to that if we look at it through the lens of our failure instead of through the lens of his cleansing grace we're going to be hopeless and he does not intend to leave us hopeless. In fact, he intends to give us hope that he has very, very important things for us to do here. And you're like, how important? Walk with him, obey him, love him, love people around you, and represent him. If we come to Jesus and we allow him to define institutions of God from his word, we not only rightly understand but, we, but he is present with us as we confess failure in these areas. As we confess failure in them, brokenness, pain, betrayal, and hurt. Even as we confess and we express all of those things, the blood of Jesus cleanses us from our sin. The precious blood of Jesus cleanses us and frees us from all that unrighteousness. If you are experiencing condemnation because of failure right now, it is not because Jesus is condemning you. You're condemning yourself. I urge you to stop, to receive grace, to hear encouragement that the Lord is calling us to walk with him and to be the people he designed us to be from the very beginning. His grace extends beyond our wretchedness. 
Does he not make all things new? Has he not made us a new creation? We don't excuse failure. We recognize it. We confess it because we want to be restored by his loving grace from it. If you're holding on to it, how are you going to be free of it? But if you let it go, he can restore you. In the closing verses, Jesus clarifies one more time a cultural inaccuracy for the disciples. They ask him questions about it. In verse 10, they said, it says, when they're in the house again, the disciples questioned him about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. Also, if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. You can look at those verses and be like, how am I supposed to like understand this in the, in the context? Is this about adultery? No, understand this. Jesus did what the rabbis refused to do. Jesus did what other rabbis wouldn't do. He recognized that a man could commit adultery against his wife. You may not have caught that in the text because if we just read it through our Western eyes, we're not thinking about that, but we need to remember something. In rabbinic Judaism, a woman by infidelity could commit adultery against her husband. Through infidelity, she could commit adultery. But a man was different. For the guys, it was different. By having sexual relations with another man's wife, he could commit adultery against that guy, against the other man, but he could never commit adultery against his own wife no matter what he did. He could do whatever he wanted, but it would not wrong her in any way in the rabbinic teaching of their day. So what did Jesus just do? Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And he says, and likewise, if she does that against him. Jesus, by putting the husband under the same moral obligation as the wife, raised the status and the dignity of women. The same rules that apply to them apply to you, homeboys. Fellas, dudes. He placed the same weight and responsibility upon men that God had intended from the beginning and had been removed by men have been removed by the teachings of men. And Jesus says, not so. You are just as responsible. You're just as responsible to be faithful. Married people, we need to ask the right questions of Jesus. Unmarried people, we need to ask the right questions of Jesus. We need to come to him transparently, longing to be obedient and one with him so that we can be one with others, so we can be right with others. We have to remember that His grace is sufficient for every aspect of our lives, and that includes our marriages. And we need to not get caught up in the teaching of the day unless that teaching is in agreement with the Scriptures. If I am teaching something that is not in agreement with God's Word, you need to not listen to it. But if it does agree, if you read the Bible and it does agree, We need to walk in this together. Paul Tripp is one of my favorite um, counselor, pastor, writers, professors uh, who writes and and speaks about marriage. He deals with a lot of inter-church relational issues. I pulled this excerpt from his book because I want to read it to you and I'd love to pretend like I wrote this. But I'm not going to do it. (laughs) Um, It's it's too good. I'd read it and you'd be like, "Uh, Mike, that clearly was not you. I want to read this quote to you guys, and then um, we're going to 
talk about communion for a moment. I encourage you guys, just, just listen to this carefully. You never arrive at a location where he is not present. You never live in a relationship without him being there as well. You never face a disappointment, temptation, responsibility, obligation, opportunity, or calling without the resources of his grace. In your darkest moment, his grace lights your way. In your deepest disappointment, his love gives you hope. When you are weak and exhausted, his strength gives you reason to go on. When you're confused and don't know what to do, his wisdom gives you direction. In the moments when you feel wounded and alone, he comforts you with loving and healing hands. When you've lost your way, he seeks you, he finds you, and brings you back. Your hope of a long-term loving marriage is found in one place, God's love for you. Admit that you need it, and then give yourself to celebrating that this God of love has brought you and your spouse together for his glory and your good. And remember, he will not call you to a task without giving you, in his grace, what you need to do it. If you need that quote, email me. I'll send it to you. I don't know how we can walk away from this without feeling encouraged or hopeful that God's got this and that we need to entrust every aspect of our lives to him. Is there not a deep longing for us to fulfill the purpose for which God created us? Don't we become so aware of our inadequacies when we read his precious word and we see how far short we've fallen? We have, to, we have to hear that conviction in the same breath as we hear the hope and the encouragement that it's spoken with. You guys, we, we can think about our inadequacies so, enough, so much, we can think about how far short we've fallen so much that we get dejected. We start pulling back, we lose hope that we can actually do things his way and we just give up trying altogether. And yet Jesus offers grace, calls us to himself, encourages us relentlessly, so much so that the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 4, verse 14, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses but one who has been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, because of that, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. That's why we come. We come because Jesus is forgiving us continually, strengthening us continually, washing us continually, and every time I fail and he cleanses me, he's standing there with the door wide open and says, you see that? Well, you probably don't. There was a veil there, and now it's been ripped open. So go on in. Go on in and present yourself to the Father and not receive a just judgment for your sin. Receive the grace and the blessing and the beauty and the love and the affection that the father has for the son go on in and receive that from your father and he says that's the grace and the help that you're going to need that's the mercy that you need right now and he offers it to us freely 
And I can't think of a better way to remember that than to take communion. Than to take communion together and remember what Jesus did for us so that we can receive that grace and that mercy and that help in our time of need because Jesus took our place on the cross. Worship team, come on forward and whoever's going to distribute communion, could you guys um, come on up as well? You guys, as we come to the Lord's table this morning and as we've been shown what marriage truly is, we're reminded of what communion truly is. This is what communion is. The sacrament of the Lord's Supper is a visible means of telling the story of Jesus' passion and his death in our place. The bread and cup demonstrate our participation with him in that event, just like we did with baptism. Just like we've done with baptism this year. We've had so many baptisms. It's incredible. It's been so much fun. But that's exactly what you're seeing. You're like, it's so much fun. Yeah, people are dying. But then they come out of the water. Then we bring them back up and show in a very physical way the spiritual reality of being a new creation. This person is dead, and yet now they are alive because of Jesus. You see, guys, we are retelling the story through participating in taking communion. Paul said it in 1 Corinthians 10, 16, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a sharing in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a sharing in the body of Christ? You are participating with him, remembering what he did. And so, because it's something that we recognize not only as heavy and significant, but it's also reason to rejoice, is it not? Communion's an opportunity for us to not only confess sin, but rejoice in the fact that we're forgiven of our sin. That we're forgiven because of Jesus. The Lord's Supper is an occasion of joy. It reconciled in our hearts with God and the body, we're receiving the gift of the body and blood of Jesus. And in receiving that, we're receiving forgiveness, new life, restoration. How does that not fit with what we've talked about in Mark 10 today? So we're going to take a moment. We're going to sing some verses and some choruses of this song. These guys are going to distribute the communion elements to you. Hold on to them. We'll take those together. But for right now, let's just take a moment. You can pray, as you can sing. Just whatever the Lord is doing in your heart, I want you to let Him do it. Married couples, if you're here with your spouse, it's okay for a little PDA to happen here, okay? Not too much. Put your arm around your spouse and pray for them. Put your arm around your spouse and pray for them this morning. If your spouse wasn't able to be here, pray for them. People in relationships, pray for the person next to you that God would be at work and that he would be glorified through this relationship. Single people, pray for each other. You're in this together. Stand together. You're in this life to walk with each other. Pray for each other. Take a moment as we get ready to take communion together. Let's just let the Lord do some ministry amongst the body. And then we'll take those elements together as the church.